0: I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, the show about living and working deeply in a distracted world. Here in my deep work HQ, joined by my producer, Jesse. Jesse, I'm excited we have a guest coming up. Yeah. Later in the program, I will be joined by Laura Vanderkam, who a lot of you know. She's the author of nine books. She's another one of these nonfiction writers like me who emerged from that early 2000s era where blogs were king and a lot of us came out of that world into the world of professional writing. She focuses on time management with a particular focus on making time for the things that matter, even when there are multiple things that matter that are in conflict. So she's known in particular really for thinking about you have your career, you have your family. You're trying to make both of these things work. Very pragmatic, very evidence-based. I know we have a lot of fans of Laura in this audience. So later in the show, she's going to join me. We're going to do a bunch of questions together. I pulled a lot of questions that felt like they would be in her wheelhouse, and we will discuss them. She'll give her thoughts. I'll give mine. We'll see where we differ. We'll see what we, where we agree. I think that's going to be – I think it's going to be fun. Before we bring Laura on, though, uh, you know, Jesse, I got to say it's a little bit sad This may be, for a while, one of the last recordings in this studio, at least for the summer period. Yeah, you're moving up to the HQ North. Moving to HQ North. We've talked about this off and on on the show, but just to to provide some more details, around the time this episode is airing, I am going to be going up to Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. The summer quarter, I am the Montgomery Fellow on campus, which means I'll be up there teaching a course. So I'm teaching a course called Writing About Technology. Jesse, I've never written, I've never taught a writing course. I've always only taught computer science courses, so this is going to be interesting. Oh, this would be fun. Oh, that'll be fun. It's going to be, We're gonna it's a theory and practice. So we're gonna read a bunch of different technology writing and really try to understand and deconstruct from a functional perspective the different types of styles and tones and voices and approaches you use to persuasively write about technology, and we're gonna write. Any examples of stuff you're going to read? Oh, I have it broken into, um, a lot of categories. So, for example, the first week, the category of writing we're going to look at is the personal encounters with technology, right? So the form where the author is a character in the writing. And, and then that I've split. We have, it's two long lecture, two long class periods per week. So the first time we're going to look at, uh, the subgenre of personal encounters with technologies focused on going to places and doing things. So this is the classic genre in which the writer goes and hits the road or goes to the factory and tries the tool. This is Kevin Kelly at Magic Leap. This is Neil Stevenson tracing the fiber optic cable that girds the earth. So it's uh, interactive journalism. Mm -hmm. And then in the second class that week, we're going to look at uh, personal encounters with technology that are based off of your own experiences and reflection. So this is more the personal essay approach to dealing with technology. So this is more Gia Tolentino and her, you know, new kind of new classic piece on Instagram face, where where it's less about I am going and doing something, and it's more you're reflecting on your own thoughts and experience with the technology. You're a proxy for the audience, so you're trying to get at some truth about the psychological impact of technology by revealing your inner psychological state. So we're gonna read a bunch of stuff, uh, then we're gonna write. So we're gonna they're gonna do writing as well. We're gonna do a lot of the work in class itself and work through a few different op-ed length technology pieces. So it's going to be a bit of learning the tools, practicing the tools. That's cool. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. So if you're a sophomore at Dartmouth, so at Dartmouth, the sophomores are on campus during the summer. Oh, really? All the sophomores are there. So if you're a sophomore, that's who I'll be teaching. So if you're a sophomore, sign up for the class. Uh, we, we would love to have you. So that'll be fun. So anyways, that means I'll be recording uh, remotely remotely I'll be up there. Jesse will be down here. We might have another studio recording. I'm, I'm coming back for a little bit of time. So we might be able to squeeze in a, a HQ South recording somewhere in there. But for the most part, if the podcast looks or sounds a little bit different in July and August, that's because I'm, I'm up doing uh, fellowship stuff. So that should be fun. Yeah. We'll see. I'm going to hike. There's a nice trail right next to the house where we're staying. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's the cross country trail. It goes across uh, along the river. So I'll have a lot of big thoughts. Uh, So looking forward to that. Before we get to Laura, uh, I also wanted to revisit our discussion from last week about the deep life stack. Was that last week, Jesse? Yeah. I lose track of time. That seems like it was forever ago, but it really wasn't. Yeah, it was last week. Yeah. So I got a lot of good feedback. So the deep life stack, I I was proposing a more elaborated understanding of my philosophy of how to cultivate a deep life and i introduce this notion of a deep life stack where you you build these layers sequentially one after another as opposed to just jumping right into rejiggering parts of your life. In fact, I'll bring up on the screen now the version of the stack i i drew in last week's episode. So if you're listening and want to see what's on the screen, this is episode 253. So go to youtube.com/cal Newport media and search for episode 253 or go to the deeplife.com and look for episode 253. So what you'll see on the screen was the stack I drew on Monday uh, or Monday. I don't know when it was last week. So we had discipline, values, calm, and plan. And the idea was you worked your way up the stack en route to cultivating a deeper life. And then you iterate. So it's a process where you keep iterating. All right. I sent this out for feedback to you, my listeners. I got a lot of good feedback. So one of the things I want to try, the the change I want to try today, one of many iterations I'm sure will be coming in the months ahead, is tweaking the description of these stacks away from just a single word to something with a verb. So I want to to try relabeling each of the labels, uh, layers here with a verb, an actual action, as opposed to just a noun, and see if this maybe clarifies things even more. So I have this on the screen now. I'm I'm going to start with the very bottom layer, which is discipline. I'm erasing the word discipline. All right, and I'm going to rewrite. We have so many cables in here. All right. I don't want to mess with our feed here. All right, there we go. All right, let's rewrite here. And I'm changing the label with my brilliantly neat handwriting. So it used to say discipline. Now it says establish or, in parentheses, reestablish discipline, right? So there's a verb here now. It's what are you trying to do as you work through the first layer of the deep life stack is you're trying to either re-get in touch with or establish from scratch a sense of I am someone who is able to do something hard in the moment towards something that is meaningful or important In the long term. So this is where, as we talked about last time, you're going to, first of all, set up your central repository where you keep track of all of your commitments in this journey. And you're going to initiate that central repository with a few seed disciplines, a small number of things that are important, that are hard, but not impossible that you are pursuing regularly just to reset your sense of self, just to reset your energy towards. Okay. I am someone who can make progress towards hard things. I am a disciplined person. Now I'm going to take the next layer, which was originally called values. And I erased a little bit of the box there. So I'll put that back and I'm going to replace that with a verb. So again, if you're watching episode 253, you'll actually see my penmanship in action. All right. I'm writing in a new description for this layer. So where it used to just say values, I now say build a foundation of values. So I've just added an active verb here. You're building a foundation. That's the goal. Now, what is this foundation? It's going to be something that clarifies what in this part of your life your values are. This is going to include your code. It's going to include rituals. It's going to include routines. But what's active here is you're building the foundation on which everything else will be built. A lot of people ask, why not do that first? Why is discipline coming first? Because discipline is changing your sense of self so that everything else is possible. It's setting up the central repository where you're going to write down everything you commit to doing. But more importantly, it's where you change your rhythm of life towards one where I'm doing this with my exercise. I'm doing this with reading. There's something I'm doing. There's a couple of things I'm doing that are hard and I'm proud of. And that's what leads me to believe that everything else is possible, too. So that's why I'm maintaining discipline first. All right, moving up. Calm. I am going to replace calm with create calm through control. So the active verb here is that you're creating calm. You're seeking to create calm in your life, to have breathing room, to pursue interesting things, to have the ability to do things really well. If that becomes a big part of the plans that are coming next, how are you going to create this calm? You're going to gain control. You're going to gain control over your time. You're going to gain control over all the different obligations on your plate. So it's not just haphazard. You're going to get remain, uh, get control over your your workload, professional and personal as well. You're going to start doing some essentialism here. I'm going to cut this. I'm going to cut that out. I need to make some breathing room. So through control, you're going to create calm in your life. That's what brings us to the top layer of the stack. Last week, I simply just said uh, plan, and that is a verb, so we'll keep that. But now I'm going to say plan for the remarkable so what type of plans are you making here? This is where you take different parts of your life, piece by piece, one by one, the buckets that are important to you and say, how am I going to overhaul this area of my life? All of this, of course, is going to generate new commitments or systems or ideas that go into that central repository you set up right. But what is your goal with this planning? I wanted that in here, and this is why I say plan for the remarkable. And I don't mean remarkable in the hyperbolic sense of, oh, my God, it's you know every part of your life you've overhauled into some sort of – uh crazy over-the-top expression. It's not just you're exercising a lot, but that you're rich role doing the five Ironmans in five days or something like this. I actually mean remarkable more in the literal sense. When you overhaul, you make a plan to overhaul a part of your life, it becomes worthy of remark to other people in your life. The other people in your life will say, you know, I noticed what you're doing with fitness or what you're doing with your uh, connection to life of the mind, what you're doing with how you're integrating your life into the community that people are important to you. I have noticed how intentional you are about it, how rewarding that seems, how impressive that seems. So when I say plan for the remarkable, I mean, you're overhauling the different areas of your life one by one with the goal of making those areas of your life worthy of remark. Now, maybe in one of these areas, you want to push it to remarkable in the hyperbolic sense. I can do something huge that People are going to hear about and be impressed by you if they don't know me. But you don't have to do that everywhere. But you do want the different parts of your life to be overhauled with enough intention that people notice. I notice what you're doing there. That's interesting. That's appealing. That's impressive. So I put plan for the remarkable. All right. So this is what's uh, call this. I'm going to label the top here, the deep life stack. I'm going to add version 2.0. All right. So we have continued to make progress here in thinking about the deep life stack. Everything we talk about on the show comes back one way or the other to probably one of these layers or at least most things we talk about. I would say when uh, Laura joins us here in a second, I'm looking at the questions I've pulled. Those are going to deal mainly with the calm and plan layers that create calm through control. We have some questions definitely about getting your handle on obligations, uh, time, and workload. Also, there's going to have some questions there that really... Cover this plan for the remarkable as well. Okay. I want to take this part of my life and make it better, but I'm struggling to do it, or I want a clear vision for how to do that. So we'll be, we'll be lurking in these two layers primarily uh, in the questions that we do today. But over time, of course, we'll keep hitting on all of these layers. All right. That's 2.0. Jesse, what do you think? Better, worse, unnecessary? Do you like the verbs? I like the verbs. Yeah. I think it explains it a little bit better. Yeah. Verbs for me always help, I guess, because you, then you can imagine you doing something. Yeah. As opposed to just a, a label. Yeah. What does that label mean? So we'll see if that helps. This will keep evolving. Maybe this will be my summer project when I'm podcasting. I'll keep, we'll keep coming back to this, thinking through the stack a little bit more, clarifying this. So we have some sort of framework for all the specific advice we talk about. So when we're talking about some system or some case study or, or talking to an author about some idea from their book, you can place it mentally in. Where does this fall into this approach to cultivating a deep life? Oh, we're, we're, we're in the case study about establishing discipline today. Yeah. Oh, no, this is a system about organizing your time. Where does that fit into the idea of being having a deep life? Oh, we're at the calm, create calm through control layer, working on that. Oh, we're, we're talking about someone who created a really cool life living on an island somewhere. Oh, we're in the plan for the remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, we can have some clarity, clarity about where we are. So we'll see. All right, so I'm excited. I want to bring Laura into the conversation here in a second. First, let me just mention one of the sponsors that makes this show possible. That is our friends at Roan, R-H-O-N-E. I was actually thinking about Roan recently as I'm moving up north to do a summer semester at Dartmouth. I don't normally teach or do events in the summer. I'm going to be doing a lot of events up at Dartmouth. And Jesse, to the point where I'm almost worried about this, so this fellowship has a full-time scheduler who manages my calendar while I'm up there because there's so many events on campus and public that come along with this fellowship, right? Which I don't normally do during the summer. So now I care about clothes that are going to look nice, but also be flexible and lightweight and breathable and allow me to go through long summer days from the classroom up to giving a speech up to doing a panel. And this has got me thinking about Roan because they have exactly clothing collection that would make that possible and that is their commuter collection the most comfortable breathable and flexible set of pro- products known to mankind right they help you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection we're talking pants we're talking dress shirts we're talking fourth zips and polos they have everything you need for your, out, out, uh, your outfit what is the right word I'm thinking about your closet your collection of clothes is there a word for that yeah uh, wardrobe. Yeah. Man. tired today, Josie. Um, it's four-way fresh, uh, stretch fabric. I do like this about the commuter collection. So it's breathable and flexible. It's also very lightweight. I love this about the commuter collection. It breathes. It's a very lightweight shirt. It's flexible. You don't feel like you're overheating even if you're very active in the day. It also looks great. It has wrinkle release technology, so it looks good. It doesn't get wrinkly throughout the day. In fact, the wrinkles disappear as you wear it more. It also has gold fusion anti-odor technology, so if you're having that long day in the summer, you're not going to smell like it. So the commuter collection can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com slash cal and use that promo code cal, and you will get twenty. 20- off your entire order that's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com slash cal and use that code cal it's time to find your corner office comfort I think my plan to wear the commuter collection Jesse is better than my other plan of wearing a full 19th century woolen academic regalia I can uh, picture you in one of those hats you know I, have, I wore the hat recently I don't know if you ever met Alex, my, my PhD student, but he graduated and I uh, hooded him. And so I had to wear the full regalia with the floppy hat. So that was my original plan for this summer. It was just to, I wanted to sort of impress people with my academic credentials. So I figured what better way than to wear my full woolen <laughs> knee length academic regalia with the hat and the, and the hood and the giant sleeves that looks like Dumbledore. So I was just going to wear that around. Yeah, you can uh, wear that on your walks. Cause I'll tell you something. This is insider baseball for academia, but different universities have different color schemes for their regalia. And typically it's, you know, it's black, but there'll be a detail on the shoulders. MIT, right? Since I my doctor's from MIT, that's my, my, uh, regalia university. It's very noticeable because it's gray with maroon. It <laughs> so really can flex. I'm going to walk around in my MIT regalia. That was my original plan, but I figured, I don't know, middle of the summer, July. Maybe that's not the most breezable, flexible thing. So plan B, Roan commuter collection. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. That'd be good. We'll see how that goes. Maybe Roan should make use their four-way stretch fabric to make performance regalia. <laughs> <laughs> From the academic hooding ceremony onto the golf course without even having to stop in between, Roan regalia for the incredibly pompous academic in your life. All right, well, I also want to talk about our friends at Ladder. You know you need life insurance. If you don't have it and you're anxious about this, the reason that uh, the explanation for that is probably you don't know where to begin. Where do you even go? Who do you even talk to? I would suggest you check out our friends at Ladder, which is a 100% digital uh, solution. There's no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. If you're applying for $3 million in coverage or less, you answer a few questions online about your health in an application. You need just a few minutes on a phone or a laptop to apply. There's smart algorithms and work in real time, so you'll find out if you're instantly approved. We're talking no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. Ladder works with great insurers. We're talking about those with long proven histories of paying claims, those that are rated A and A plus by A.M. best. Look, insurance gets more expensive with each extra year that you age. So now is the time to cross this off your list, and Ladder is going to allow you to do that easily. Just go to ladderlife.com slash deep today to see if you are instantly approved. That is L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash deep, ladderlife.com slash deep. All right. So let's go uh, on to our question segment which we will be joined today by Laura Vandercam. Jesse, let's get Laura on the line. Sounds good. All right, Laura, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am. I've been I've been looking forward to this for a while now. So as I've been in recent episodes looking at questions, pulling questions for the episodes. I'd had a special Mark for, Oh, this might be a good one to talk to Laura about. So I actually Excellent. finally get a, I actually find a, finally get to use those. Um, let's get a couple, there's a couple things I wanted to ask about you just to, the orient our, our listeners some though. Our listeners seem to know you well, because they will often tell me you should ask Laura about that when they don't like one of my answers. <laughs> so I don't know how many people this will actually be edifying. Um, but what's your, your book count these days? Are you eight or nine? Oh Where are you?
1: Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I have have six full-length time management books. Yes. Um, so that tends to be what people know me for. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I wrote some stuff before then, have written some other things during there that uh, are, are on different topics, uh, more just because I like a lot of different things. And um, some fiction,
0: but, which I and admire. And some fiction
1: as well. I've written a few novels. Um, probably your listeners have not read those. <laughs> but uh, the time management ones, yes, yeah, six six books on that right now.
0: How was the experience writing a novel coming from someone who who is primarily writing pragmatic nonfiction?
1: Well, I've kind of gone in and out of both over the years. And so um, I don't know that I would even have thought that you know, that I had trained as a nonfiction writer or anything like that. It's just something I've, I've always done on the side, um, to write fiction as well. There's a, a little bit less of a commercial market for a lot of it, unless you're, you know, the really big name type people. But, um, yeah, I, I find that writing is writing yep. and a lot of the same ideas hold for both. Um, it really helps to know what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, maybe some people can wing it, but I find it's better to know where you're going with something that you're writing. Um, The more you have a detailed outline, the better it's going to be um, to write it, the process of writing. So with nonfiction, it's generally that you have the chapter outline, you have the research you're talking about, the people you've interviewed, that's all there. For fiction, it's more that, okay, here are all the chapters. Here's what's going to happen in in each of the chapters and writing an actual outline of each of those. And so then you can go in and fill them in. And as with both, it gets better. The more times you go through it, the more times you edit it, the more feedback you get on it from people who know what they're talking about and so generally just try to do the same thing for both
0: that's good to hear that's good to hear so then um so when i describe i'm trying to describe you uh to other people tell me if i get this right so so in your nonfiction, you focus on time management but within time management really there's an emphasis on making time for the things that matter uh even when there's multiple answers to that question that are not compatible with each other, the classic example being career matters, family matters. But not just that, that being a, a the canonical example of how do I support and make time for things that really matter when I have multiple different things that matter, each of which would like to consume all of my time if possible, each of which would consume all of my time if I'm uh, not intentional about it or not wary about it. Is that – is that a good description? Am I am I capturing the the Laura Vanderkam oeuvre? <laughs> <Probably> <laughs> yes. there.
1: I think yeah, we're getting at it there. I mean, I have that the pithy phrase on my website of you know spend more time on what matters and less on what doesn't. So that's always what I have as my branding statement um, that I'm hoping to help people do. Um, I. You know, I'm definitely interested in the intersection of things like work and life or, or whatever people want to do that is apart from sort of career responsibilities. Uh, you know, many people are deeply involved in their communities or have, you know, whatever else that they wish to do in their personal lives. And I find that we often create these ideas that the two are in opposition. You know, people talk about work-life balance like they are on opposite sides of the scale. So when right. one goes up, the other inevitably has to go down because that's that's the way a scale works, you know. But I, I'm not even sure that's the best metaphor. And I don't really like it because I think in many cases they aren't in opposition to nearly the degree that people think they are. Um, and so I'm always trying to get people to think more broadly about how they spend their time to consider all the possibilities of how they are spending their time. Um, and, and perhaps on a fundamental level to think about time in a broader way, like 168 hours, which is the number of hours in a week instead yep. of 24 hours in a day. I mean, people think about 24 hours in a day. They are inevitably going to limit whatever they can get to because yep. it's a shorter amount of time. But you look over a week, maybe more possibilities open up.
0: Uh, the other way I describe you sometimes is uh, evidence-based time management writer because you you have this particular research methodology built around having people keep track of how they spend their time, get data on how they spend their time, and then using that information. How many of your books have used that, the time diaries as one of the the key sources of, of data? Because it's multiple books, right? I mean I first encountered this in one sixty eight hours, but you've used this in other books, right?
1: Yeah, so 168 hours, definitely I had people track their time for that. Um, with my book, I Know How She Does It, um, which came out oh, about seven, eight years ago now, it was a time diary study that particularly looked at women who had big jobs and who also had kids at home, and tracked how they spent time for 168 hours mm-hmm. um, for each of them. And so I could look at questions of, you know, wh- how much do people work? When do they work? Uh, what other things do they do in their lives? And so I could get some actual data on that that question that I think a lot of people, you know, approach with far more, I don't know, not data. Let's just put it that way. Sure. Um, and then Off the Clock was another book of mine where I had um, many hundreds of people record a day, and I looked at the difference between people who had a more abundant perspective on time and, a, you know, the people who had sort of a more scarcity mindset about time as, as measured on various dimensions. You know, what are people doing differently? Right. Like what what can I draw conclusions from this? Wait,
0: now we need to hear uh, these conclusions. Wait, so go back. Yeah. <laughs> right, so from I know how she did it. Um, how were the women with the big jobs and families doing it? What was the punchline mm-hmm. there?
1: Well, the punchline, well, the, I mean, again, the truth is there's 168 hours in a week, yeah. and while big jobs, so everyone in the study ha- was earning six figures, right? That was mm-hmm. my, my dividing line, and not that you can't have a big job with a lot of responsibilities and earn less than that, and not that some six-figure jobs aren't total coasting kind of things, it's just you need some thing for yeah. doing any sort of research. So they had six-figure jobs, they had kids at home. In many cases, they weren't working around the clock. I mean, that's a common misperception that you know, big, high-paying jobs require you to work all the time. Yep. Um, in many cases, they do not. Okay. People definitely work longer than 40 hours, but they're not working 80 hours. And and there's a huge difference between working, like, I don't know, 45 hours a week and working 75 hours a week. And if you think you need to work 75 hours a week, that's going to suggest very different things than if you find out, like, oh, hey, most people in these big jobs work somewhere between 40 and 50 hours a week. Is that right?
0: continuous or, or is it – how does that spread out?
1: It was not necessarily continuous, and that was the other interesting thing, um, you know, because even if you say, well, okay, they're going to be working 50 hours a week, I've seen people say, well, then you have to, you know, leave the house at 7 a.m. for your hour-long commute, work 8 to 6, and then be home at 7 p.m., and so you'll never see your family or whatever, like that sort of thing. But that isn't the way most people worked, And and I'm sure many of your listeners who have jobs and families, and particularly young children, have sort of figured this out on their own, but it, it turns out that many people do this. Of ending work more on the early side, hanging out with your family for a couple hours, maybe doing some more work at night after kids go to bed. Um, Or there are cousins of this version that involve getting up early and doing work or, you know, doing a shift on the weekend or something like that. But in order to spread it around so that you are there when young kids are awake um, and moving some of that work that could be done whenever to times that are sort of lower opportunity cost.
0: And then, for, okay. Then, for off the clock, what was the differences you observed behind between the self-reported time abundant versus time scarcity groups?
1: Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. I mean, one was making time for sort of more reflective activities. Um, that was something that came out quite pronounced in the data. Um, that the people who had the most abundant perspective on time were spending time on things like journaling, meditating yoga, you know, any sort of thing along those lines, spiritual disciplines, whatever would have you think about life, like that you built in space to think about life. And the people who had a more scarce perspective did almost none of that. And, you know, who knows? It could be correlation, causation, but I thought it was interesting to to see something so um, profound as that. Um, People who had a more abundant perspective on time spent more time interacting with people. Right, like right. they um, spent more time engaged with friends and family than the people who had um, a more scarce, you know, view of time, and and right. that on some level doesn't make sense because obviously people take time, but uh, you know, I, what my saying that came out of that is that people are a good use of time, right? Because those um, that active engagement with fellow humans that you are enjoying is what makes time feel richer and more full, and, and, and
0: probably uh, is a slower perception of time. So an mm-hmm. hour spent yeah. doing, let's say, interacting with people in your mind, it probably feels more expansive than an hour spent on your phone. Mm-hmm. So reflect when you reflect back, you say, "Oh, I had a lot of time that day yeah. where I was I was doing other things." There's a, a different subjective experience to the different. Yeah, it times. just
1: changes the story you tell yourself. And I mean, just one more thing with with what they found differently. I found um, that the people who had a more abundant perspective on time, their lives looked more interesting. Like I had people recording like a Monday, I think, is what it was that that they you know, everyone did the same day. Yeah. um, but people did something like go to salsa dancing lessons on a Monday night, you know, <laughs> I mean the, the the people who were in that top group were highly likely to have something that was just like, oh. That's like an actual thing, yeah. right? Like it's not, you know, I went to work, I came home, I ate dinner, I watched TV, I went to bed. You know, it was, yeah. it was just that they had put something of of some more excitement, something that's different out of the ordinary into their lives, making more memories, more memories, again, like interacting with other people. Makes now, is the, number,
0: is the number of work hours, though, more or less the same between these groups? Is that that's this is more about what they did with the time that was outside of work is what impacted how they felt about their schedule, not that – In order to do salsa dancing, they were working on average three hours less or something like this.
1: It wasn't as profound a difference as you might think. I think the people who had a – I'm trying to remember this correctly here because it was five years ago now. But uh, from what I remember, uh, the people who had a more scarce perspective on time were working a little bit more than the people who had the most abundant perspective. But we're talking like minutes. It it wasn't three hours a day. You know that was not the primary explanation for the difference.
0: That's interesting. So you know, I pulled new questions uh, to go over with you today, but this makes me want to revisit a question I did last week on the show. I want to get your take on this. I don't remember the exact wording, but the setup of this question is is basically someone the 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 person asking the question said, "Look, I uh, I'm from a dual income." family we have two you know we, me and my spouse both work uh, we're middle class upper upper middle class or a knowledge work dual income family and they said th- it's impossible really to do anything they called it what i call a deep life but sort of any type of activities like your salsa dancing exercise reading they said that's clearly would be impossible to do um, without a huge amount of paid help because the way they said it is all, all we're doing is sort of like wrangling our kids and we're tired and, you know, there's no time. And so is any sort of self focused or focus on interesting elements or prioritization of things in your life beyond just work and the care of your family? Their question was, is that impossible if you don't have? And they listed off a huge sort of list of, I, I you know, Staff, I guess. I don't know. People, I didn't even know you could hire these people, right? But this whole sort of Gatsby, you have like a staff that's like taking care, taking care of everything. It's like my yard takes a long time and my kids, I have to drive around and we have to make dinner and I'm tired. All right. So how do you think about something like that? Because you've actually spent your time, you've spent a lot of time looking at the time of a lot of real people. So Mm -hmm. how do you think about that situation or at least that, that claim that there is no time to do anything else in a sort of standard dual-income family unless you have a household manager, unless you have a yard crew, unless you have a nanny to pick kids up from schools, etc.
1: No, I well, I don't agree with that fundamentally, um, partly because I've seen so many people manage to make space for interesting things in their lives. Um, I mean, the first key thing is that there's two of them, right? There's two adults in this house. Yeah. Um, so that right there creates a little bit more space and capacity than than many people are, are dealing with. Um, so, you know, in families like this, one of the best habits you can get into is is following one of my favorite time management rules, which is to take one night for you. And each adult gets one night. Um, and so it's a quid pro quo. Uh, you know, you take Tuesday, I cover for you. You take Thursday, I cover for you. Yep. Um, so each, each parent does one night solo with the kids. And as a result, each parent gets one night on their own to do what they wish. And I always encourage people to choose something that is out of the home, fun for you, and involves a commitment to other people. And the reason for those three things is that, you know, people are like, well, I, I want more time to myself, I'm going to take you know, better care of myself, have self care, I'm going to go take more bubble baths or something like that. But but of course, that can be done whenever. And okay. so it tends to get pushed around if life gets busy, if yeah. you know, something happens. Whereas if you are playing on a softball team, on Thursday nights, like, they're planning on you being there, right? Like that's part of the lineup. You've got to show up. So even if you're busy, right. even if things are a little chaotic at home, you will go. And you're that way push it, it happens. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're not going to push it to some other time because you can't. Like everyone else is there. And
0: it touches um, on and, those two mm-hmm. things you saw before in your data, other people and other novel, people. novel activity.
1: Novel activity.
0: You will, the um, same amount of yeah. time spent doing it, you're going to think of it as, wow, I spent a lot of time doing this interesting thing. It just feels, it feels more expansive.
1: Yeah. and many cases, this night for you doesn't have to take, like, much time. And I've seen people feel like their lives are totally transformed by the equivalent of two hours spent playing tennis with friends on yep. Tuesday, you know. And, and th- their whole week feels different now that they have this thing they are looking forward to. And it is two hours out of the entire 168 hours that, you know... If you have a partner, your partner is with your kids, right? It's not you didn't have to outsource this, you know, yep. crazy. And, and now obviously you can like if if one parent is has a job that involves a ton of travel or late hours or, you know, somebody's deployed or, um, you know, if you are a single parent, I mean, maybe you work out something else, whether that's hiring a babysitter or trading off with a neighbor or friend or other relative. But the point is, you can take one night. Yeah. Like you can't tell me you can't take one. There are six others that you're there for, but one you can do.
0: You had a good example, and I think it was in your book, Tranquility by Tuesday. Cause I, I I remember talking about it on the show, and it was a professor, and she was having a hard time finding time to do her research. And she had given you – and I don't remember the details. You might remember this. She She had come up with some plan that was – just these little slivers of time if okay i can i can take 30 minutes in between this being done before whatever and if i remember that one of the things that really unlocked it was they it was the deployment of a babysitter maybe like two afternoons or one afternoon a week on a non-teaching day and if she thought about it, if i've a babysitter pick the kids up from school at 3 and be with them till 5:30 it's a minor thing right that's not that many hours she doesn't teach that day she could be aggressive about starting at noon and working from noon to five. And she could even leave her office to go to a library. I might've added that part, but get like five hours twice a week to just do research. And it completely changed things for her. And what she was trying to do instead was I can't change anything. I can't, can't rearrange everything. I just have to look at my existing busy schedule and try to find these slivers. And it was just terrible. I'll get up at five and then I'll have like 30 minutes over here to do it. That made no sense. So I remember that, that small thing you suggested it's uh two hours of a babysitter twice a week or something like this. Unlock ten hours. Ten hours of I'm in the consistently working on research. And that's all she that that was it. That was the whole game that was gonna make that doable for her.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really often does not take much. I mean, we're not talking, again, the the gardener and the butler or whatever else that family was telling you that they thought they needed um, in order to make it work. Um, So, yeah, that particular professor, I mean, you know, she was in the tenure window trying to get her research and her publications. As you're well aware, It's you know, it takes time. And, and, you know, she had to teach and she had to deal with, um, in her particular case, she was, um, a, a professor of education and she was helping to train young teachers, which as you can imagine, as she's supervising them, there's a million things that can go wrong with that. So there's a lot of, a lot of back and forth. So it was hard to find that deep work time. And, you know, she suggested these very small slivers a couple times a week. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're getting tenure in that. Um, but she, you know, and this gets said something which is interesting because I think I'm not sure how many, um, You know, men and women difference here, but I'm not sure how many men who are in the tenure window at major universities would be thinking that they should be picking up their kids from school every day at three o'clock. Like that, that strikes me as sort of the kind of thing that maybe many of those men wouldn't be considering should be on their plate. And so it was kind of interesting to me that she thought it should be on her plate every day. And and obviously, yeah, just doing it most days, but just not a couple days. Right. You're saying a man up a lot of time. A
0: man in that situation might have just said, "Well." this is not going to work. I can't do this every day. So we, we have to either hire someone or figure out how to, how to swap this. They would be more likely to just advocate for, Hey, there's got to be, I want, I need that time. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so she
1: needed somebody to point that out to her, yeah. right? Because I, I think she just didn't have it in her mind that since she, you know, it's a flexible job, but you, unless you're teaching, you could go do something. And, and so it, it just needed to be pointed out that just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should
0: yeah and then also i believe she did the other element of this is just working out with her husband it was like saturday morning or sunday morning like if we just had consistently this three hours which uh he didn't mind at all like yeah it's great i have this great routine with the kids on like saturday morning we go do something but it, that was another consistent block of okay yeah
1: this, and yeah. and part of the upside then of having multiple blocks is when something inevitably goes wrong i mean you know one of her student teachers had some disaster that you know she has to then deal with um she wouldn't lose all her research time. I mean, the problem is, yeah. you know, people carve out like one four-hour block for research and, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out something's going to go wrong at yeah. least some of the weeks. And so if you only have one slot, it won't happen maybe at least a third of the time. But if you have two slots, if you have three slots, the odds that all three disappear are, are pretty low.
0: All right. So that let's get into the questions then, because I'm, I'm looking at the questions we have here from my, my listeners. And the first question is actually from a professor who's a mom who's struggling with this. So I think we've, we've queued it up. It wasn't my plan, but now that I'm looking at this, all right, this is a, this is a long question. So I might try to edit here a little bit on the fly. Um, this is from someone who, who says, calls herself professor mommy. All right. My academic career is currently going well, but things are complicated. I had a 2.5 year old when I started my faculty position and I've had two additional babies in the past three years. My kids are now six, three and nine months. I'm assuming, by the way, she means six and three years old. and nine yes. months. Yes. I always I yes. always like the dangling, <laughs> yes. the ambiguous six modifiers. Years,
1: three years, <laughs> nine months. yes. I, I, was,
0: I was about to be very impressed. Um, okay, child care is not an issue. My oldest is in elementary school, and the little ones are in daycare. Uh, I also have the most supportive husband in the world. but I feel like two kids was manageable, but three is utterly chaotic. I felt like we went from having two kids to having thirty. We just go through cycle after cycle of illness. My husband and I basically take turns working and taking care of the sick kids. My PhD advisor told me when I was a graduate student that I would need to accept being a mediocre professor and mother if I were to pursue both. I now totally understand what she meant. I feel like I suck at both jobs. I can't do high-quality work in academia because the kids require so much time and energy. I'm drained. I'm stressed out. I'm sleep-deprived and irritable, which makes me feel terrible. What should I do? I assume, Laura, you're going to say wake up at 4 a.m. and work harder, but you can correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong.
1: I, I'm going to go ahead and correct you here. I mean, I would say, OK, the first thing, a couple of things come to mind is like, boy, your your advisor had her own issues. So, like, I, I can't believe that mm-hmm. anyone who is in a mentoring capacity would decide to say this to an ambitious young woman in her care. But We'll leave that aside. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, and, and by the way, the vast majority of female professors have families, and there is yes. many. Anyways, it, it's a it's a it's a very absolute statement, which doesn't seem to match the reality of. Think of any famous female academic that comes to mind. Almost certainly, they also have a family. So. Yeah. All right. Anyways, exactly. all right, let's let, all right, so let's roll forward.
1: Moving um, on from there. Yes, I, I would tell this woman, and first of all, I would not draw any harsh conclusions about life when you have a child under the age of one. Um, because yeah. this is you're in the thick of it. Like you just had a baby nine months ago. The baby is most likely not reliably sleeping through the night. Um, she may still be nursing. Like, there's just all sorts of things that are challenging in the first year or so of life yes. that will get better. Yes. <laughs> and you can see that. You know, you're like, oh, three is so much harder than two. No, the older two were older, right? And and that's what made it feel like it was manageable. And now you've added an infant back into the mix. And so you're going through the chaos again. And I'm I'm telling you that in another two years or so it will be calmed down. You'll be like, oh, these people are wonderful. I don't know, maybe you'll decide to have a fourth at that point because you will have forgotten. But uh, you know, it's it's going to be easier in the future. Um the That's the other thing that that struck out to me, she did say that childcare is not an issue, but on some level it is. Yeah. Because kids get really sick in daycare. And it's not that the daycare is doing anything wrong. It's just when you have, you know, eight toddlers in a class together, they're all touching the same things and putting them in their mouths, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's yep. going to give them great immune systems later in their life.
0: Yeah. And, but and I'm, it, it, I'm reading here, three-year-old, three-year-old mm-hmm. in 2023. It's likely that this year might have been the first time this three-year-old yeah. has been so been because you had yeah. COVID before that, or, or and and so I wouldn't be surprised if you have a completely. Untra- a new immune system thrown for the first time in the daycare is uh, – it's like in a zombie movie.
1: It's just everyone
0: <laughs> yes. is like collapsed on the ground with blood coming out of their eyes. It's just impossible, right? So so th- that's what I saw with three-year-old is this may be yeah, an unusually – ba- and also this year was yep. very bad in general – nationwide Mm -hmm. because of the, uh, the immunity debt thing with COVID. So everyone had more sicknesses than normal. So there's a, there's a bad combination going here probably that this might be unusually bad with the sickness.
1: Yeah. Um, but I mean, one, one thing I do wind up talking with a lot of families about is potentially switching the child care option. If you have multiple kids, um, you have two parents earning reasonable incomes, you might look into hiring a nanny as opposed to doing daycare. And if you already have two kids in daycare and maybe you're paying for aftercare for a child in elementary school, it might not be that different of a cost by the time you have all those factored in. The upside of that is that, you know, they won't be getting the illnesses in the daycare. Um, if kids are sick, And it's not, you know, really, really serious, then a paid caregiver can stay with them. So that will just reduce the number of sick days that you two have to take. Um, and if the kids are getting sick less often, then that helps with some of the sleep at night as well, because you don't have the kids who are awake because they are sick at night. Um, and then you have another adult who has the ability to do things around your house, whether that is, you know, you're getting your groceries delivered and that and puts them away or they throw a load of laundry into the washer. You know, there's just things that they can take care of that might yep. make life a little bit easier for you guys. So, you know, I thought maybe that's something to consider as well um, if you do think that both of you will be sort of working and building your careers for a long term. It might be worth investing in.
0: What do you think – this was an idea I had. I wanted to get your thought on it in terms of uh, advice here. Another thing that seemed relevant was at this stage in her academic career, similar to the advice you gave to the professor in your book, it might be good to say, I'm going to figure out my plan for – some fixed research hours each week and how that time is going to be protected and when it happens. And I want at this stage, whatever, eight hours a week, six hours a week, whatever seems reasonable, and really building a plan to protect that and working with your husband as opposed to just going into the chaos of uh, your normal week right now and saying, I don't know, do I have time today to do this? I, I, I don't find myself having a lot of time to research. This might be a good time to say, here's my six hours and we defend this we defend this hill to the death and it's these two sessions or these three sessions. And at least you would then have that sense of I'm making progress on the stuff that matters. Maybe I'm not at 100% because I don't know how you can be, you know, we have a baby at home and two other kids. I remember that. I remember when we had our third. You're not going to be at 100%, but you're not at zero yeah. and you could give a, give a baseline. So I don't know what your take is on that, but maybe you need to be more aggressive and defensive of. Deep work time right now, even if it's not a lot, but so the baseline's not zero.
1: Absolutely. And people have to figure out how to build their academic careers. I mean, it's it, hopefully your advisors are telling you things about this, like what matters and what doesn't. And you know. But it sounds like this particular person's advisor was not a real winner in this regard. So um, hopefully other people are, are telling you, too, about what is important. And for many people, it is that research and publications. And yes, you want to be a good teacher and you want to be a good colleague and all that. But those are often not the things that are quite as highly prized. So you want to make sure that you are putting the effort that you can muster at this point in your life into the things that are going to have that payoff. Um, and, and then there will be, you know, you can maybe catch up on the rest of the stuff and in a year or two as your sleep gets better.
0: And then my other thought is, at least for a while, be a worse colleague. I, I mean, I think guys do this very naturally when they have... when you know we have kids it's no i'm not going to do that i have a kid at home it's terrible like i had to wake up early like i'm not going to do that committee i'm not going to do that and people kind of get it like okay whatever like the, you know he's overwhelmed um and i don't know if that's the situation here but being a worse colleague for a while which is Maybe a wrong way to put it. Maybe the right way to put it is
1: you're, <laughs> protecting you're, your time a bit more. Let's put yeah, it that
0: way. <laughs> yeah, you're temporarily pulling back from a normal load of service or collegiality that maybe you had before, and you're going to have again in the future because right now you have a nine month hold, and your three month, three year old has been sick, yeah, uh, roughly what ninety eight percent of the days. Yeah. <laughs> right, I get that. So being a worse colleague, and a pol- yeah, I am sorry. Like, yeah, I, I would love to help with this, and in general, I would. But uh, like I'm dealing with a, a baby at home and it's hard and I'm, I'm a little short on time. And I would normally join this editorial board. I can't. I would normally yeah, – I have a smaller quota for journal reviews right now because I really just don't have the time I used to. But I, I, it will be better again uh, in a year or two and maybe I'll take on more. I think in general people get that, right? I mean they're yeah. not going to say that's wrong. Your baby is not hard and you should be doing this. You know, People don't care so much. They're just trying to find someone to help them. And when you're clear and say no, they're already just thinking, well, what about – this person they have just moved on. They're not yeah. they're not sitting there. There's not a board somewhere with your pictures up on it. And and these professors and regalia are sitting there and staring at it and being like, you know, she said no to this committee yesterday. And they're like, mm, yes, mm, I don't like this. I don't like what's going on at all. I don't like this one bit. Don't everyone's too busy. No one cares. No one's going to even notice if you're being a worse colleague for a year or two, but it could make a huge difference for her.
1: Yeah, especially if you are cranking out the good research, I think that goes a long way um, toward covering everything else.
0: All right, so I got a. This question's different, but it, it, it overlaps one of the techniques we just talked about, so I, I thought it'd be worth doing real quick. So this is from Mister Headache, a 31 year old engineer uh, who says he's an overworked site manager for a construction com- uh, construction company. I recently came across your article, "The Most Important Piece of Career Advice You Never Heard," and it got me to sit and actually think about what kind of lifestyle I want. So as a person who is big on family and spending time outdoors, I have decided to switch to a new role with better work hours and less stress. This requires me to refresh myself on construction management and structural design. Uh, I would really like your help now on how I can carve out time to study in those areas. Laura, should he be doing the same thing you advise the professor in your book? This is a matter of identifying those times and being willing to make some changes or deploy some resor- resources or get some uh, someone, a partner involved. Is this one of these situations as well? Uh, learning new things is going to help your job. It's similar to doing the deep work on things that are important. What's the situation here? Is that, is that about right?
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is that potentially being an on-site construction supervisor might have a lot less flexibility than, um, being That's a, a professor. So there's, there's probably less of the sort of during the day thing he could do. I mean, it, it's possible that he might have, you know, 45 minutes of downtime while he's waiting for a subcontractor to show up, but, but probably not. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, he needs to, do what I recommend to people in general, though, when you're trying to figure out where are the pockets of time I can use in my life, which is to track your time. Um, track your time, ideally for a week, so you get the parameters of what work looks like, what the rest of your life looks like. Um, and then sort of figure out where are times that you are mentally alert, but you could use this time. Um, and, and so for him, I mean, theoretically mornings are a good time for most people that they could, you know, do work for an hour, the studying for an hour and then go to their job. And the way you get that time is not by being sleep deprived. It's by going to bed earlier. So, you know, you go to bed earlier, wake up an hour earlier. Most people are not spending the hour before bed on particularly awesome things and just sort of scrolling around, uh, watching TV, puttering around the house. So cut it off, go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, turn unproductive evening hours into productive morning hours the one issue there is that, again, construction tends to be a very early in the day sort of thing. Um, so he may not be able to do that in the way that other people may. He may already be going to bed at 9 and waking up at yep. 5 to be on site at 6. Um, so if if the, that is an option for most people if you are looking for study time um, and you are working a full-time job. In his case, maybe he can figure out a way to sort of manage his energy that two days a week um, he can – After he punches out at four o'clock or whatever it is, go study for an hour in the library and then go home and deal with the family. All right. If you can get permission from your spouse to to do that, that might be the kind of thing that you could do. Another thing that tends to work really well is is one thing we did talk about with that professor is trading off with your spouse on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And this is an option that, you know, any sort of two parent family has, but many people don't think about doing it. Because it requires you to think about your weekends ahead of time. And, and, you know, we're tired during the week, so we don't do this. But, you know, he could have, let's say, you know, eight to noon on Saturday to study. And then the trade-off is that he gives his wife noon to four on Saturday and she can go do whatever she wants. She can go hang out with friends. She can go, you know, sleep. She can go relax, whatever she wants to do. But she can know that is her time that was then purchased at the price of him having those four hours to study in in the morning, and you know the kids get time with both parents individually, so you know there's no change there. Um, each of them can plan their own adventures with the kids and you know he will have the time to study.
0: I like that I like that uh, one idea I had as you were talking as well, I don't know if this applies to him or not, but if you're doing the time tracking that you talked about you might discover, oh, there's a certain activity that's taking a lot of my time. I didn't realize that. When I see how much time it is taking, I begin to think, is there a different way to do this that would be less time-consuming? And suddenly, that's a couple hours a week freed up. And where I've seen this before, it's been process-oriented. There There's something you're doing in an ad hoc fashion. So people are stopping by all the time to bother you with, I don't know, material requisition forms. It's like one of the things you have to do is the site manager, and it's it takes a lot of time and breaks things up. If you notice that, you say, oh, we could just have a – here's a box I put out, and it's like they put them in the boxes, and it's on Wednesday, whatever. Every morning I come and take these out of the boxes, and there's a box above it for approved ones and another one that says come discuss, and, and there's sort of office hours for people discuss I don't know construction management, but you know something like that. And now suddenly, this takes up these very predictable amounts of your time, and your schedule's freed up. So there's a, there's an extra side effect there. Uh, benefit maybe of tracking is you find find inefficiencies you didn't even know.
1: Yeah, well, that's I mean that's like any data collection, right? And when we're most people don't have a really good sense of where their time goes because time does keep passing no matter what you're doing so it's kind of hard to get your mind around it um but when you keep track of it then you can see and you know you're working from much better data at that point and I mean, people say oh, i want to spend my time better but if you don't know how you're spending your time now how do you even know if you're changing the right thing yep. because i mean maybe something you thought was a problem really isn't right that happens to people all the time um and then maybe something you haven't considered like in this case might be taking more time than you imagined and so you yeah. know Make sure you've got the data and then you can make wise choices.
0: All right. So for this question, I have a sort of not controversial, but a, a big swing theory. So I'm going to get your thoughts on this. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, someone else also named Cal, not me, a different Cal. This is a, an, <laughs> different engineer, Cal. Different, an engineer from the UK in his early 30s. Um, I work for a major technology firm and often feel overwhelmed and like I'm surrounded by younger guys who have much more skill and knowledge than I do. Also, because we often work remotely, I fall prey to distractions, and I'm not proud of the work I put out. I moved into this, quote-unquote, secure career so that I could provide for my young family, but now I feel like I'm drowning. My wife suggested I look for another programming job, but the idea of doing so fills me with dread. Am I too late to start again? All right, so here's my controversial take, Laura. I'm going to say... I think the issue Cal has here is not with the specific nature of his job. I think he's having an issue with work and how work fits into his life and how he organizes and approaches work, how he fits it into his life. His problem is with work, and he's hoping that the solution will be just make some sort of big change. Uh, agree or disagree on that one?
1: Well, at first, I was kind of stopped by the idea that at his early 30s, he was so too late to start a new job. I mean, that doesn't God. sound very promising. Just...
0: Not for us, not for you and I. Yeah, no, wait a no,
1: second. no, no. Uh, yeah, no I mean, I, I, I feel like this is uh, definitely more of a psychological issue than um, any sort of issue with this particular job or situation or working from home or whatever else it is that, that's going on here. Whenever people start talking about you know, their careers and they're talking about dread and feeling paralyzed that, that suggests that there's something else going on there. Um, yeah. Which I don't know what it is, um, because the, the straightforward question he asked, like, am I too late to start again, is absolutely not. Yeah, and if not. you think another programming job would make you happier um, or would have structures in place that you work better with, like it's a more in the office kind of thing, and you think you'd thrive with that, then absolutely. There are millions of jobs out there. People are generally not optimized on any dimension. People are like, "Oh, well, I worry if I find a new job, I'll have to trade something off. You know, I'll, I'll be earning less, or I'll be less flexible, or whatever else." They're like, no, well, it's entirely possible that you will find a job that is better paying and more flexible, or whatever else you're yep. looking for. Um, so, why not look? You know, just. Add it as a project to your week to see what's out there. And you might find something that you are thrilled with. So, yes, that is the straightforward question. But I I think that there is something deeper there. And and you're probably getting at that with, you know, he's needing to provide for his family, which means that he needs to take his work seriously. And this may not be something that he's done in the past. And he may be grappling with this whole idea of needing to be the responsible breadwinner in this family and what that entails. And and he is not sure about it yet.
0: Yep, feels like he's adrift. Cal, I would say go back and listen to episode 252. This might help where I talked about the deep life stack, so this sequence of layers to consider to go from my life is chaotic and unanchored to, okay, I feel as if my life is intentional, under control, and I'm aiming it where I want it to go. It's You probably, Cal – would find some benefit in this starting with just a couple disciplines just to change your self identity as look i'm someone who can do something hard even in the short term for long-term gains you move up to the values layer after that let me lock in what i'm all about build a foundation there on top of that is finding calm through control now you're reading laura's books now you're reading my books you're you're taking control of your time you're taking control of your tasks you're taking control of your workload you have systems in place you have breathing room and then you get to the final set, the layer here where you're planning for the remarkable in different parts of your life. And it's only then really, Kyle, that you should be saying, what do I want to do with the working part of my life? Is there a change I want to make? If so, what change am I trying to get? When you're making those decisions on top of that stack and not where you are now, which is at the bottom. And and I think Laura's right to point out early 30s means this might be you got married recently. You just started having kids. You don't know what you're anchored to. You're all over the place. I don't know. Is this good? I, this job I dread. I'm working. These people are better. What should I be doing? I think it's going to feel different. So uh, I think you have a, he has a lot of good things ahead of him. It's, it's just time to – I guess, a a dealt up a little bit. I feel a little condescending saying that, but there's, there's different, there's the adulting that happens when you become a grown up. you know, you're in your young twenties and then there's a whole separate process that happens if you start a family and you have to start over again and figuring out that role. So, so maybe he's there. Um, All right. We have one here from Kevin, another 30 year old from Denver. Am I crazy for thinking I can work from home with a baby my wife and I had our first son seven months ago, and I've been trying to work from home since. I have a separate office and noise-canceling headphones, but I'm still so subtracted, distracted by all of his sounds and activities. I constantly feel pulled to help my wife or play with the baby. Should I bite the bullet and rent an office space? All right, Laura, what do you, I, I can guess your answer, but I want to hear what you say, and then I'll tell you if I'm right or not with my guess.
1: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, this is, I, this occurred to me that, you know, I've worked from home for my whole life and with babies there sometimes. Um, Although this is the difference of having the baby's caregiver during the day being your spouse be, versus being a, a paid caregiver. Because in my case, what I've always been is like, well, how about you guys go have some outings during yep. times when I have things I need to focus on? And then, you know, we can come back and have lunch together or, you know, if I want to take a break and play with the baby, fine. But... You know, that is my protected time. Obviously, you really cannot do this with your spouse. You cannot dictate that your spouse take the baby to the zoo in the morning because you need to work. Like, you can't dictate that your spouse do X, Y, or Z. And so there's, there's kind of a different constraint there. Um, and, and so it might be that the simplest thing is for you to go rent an office. Um, if you think that would allow you to focus, um, then maybe that is a good solution. And you still can get the benefits of, of having this work-from-home relationship, you know, with with your employer. Like, go take lunch. Like, you know, if your, your spouse and the baby are available, you guys could meet up for lunch and, you know, have that time together. Um, maybe you can be very good about limiting your hours during the sort of work day um, and, and do some work later at night when the baby's a be- in bed, you know, so you can get home earlier and, and spend more of the afternoon playing with your baby. And I'm sure your wife would appreciate the help. Like if you end work at four instead of five, then, you know, you get the witching hour with the baby instead of her. And so she can yep. get a, get a little time off and that might be great. Um, and then just make up that hour at night. But, um, you know, if you are finding it that is very difficult for you to do, then, then probably you should listen to that. Yeah. Uh,
0: and I'm a big believer of renting office space. Even outside of that context, you have a different cognitive context to work in. Work from near home is an idea that I'm a big advocate for. Uh, the other thing I was I was going to predict you were going to say is uh, also keep in mind this is so temporary. Yes. I mean you have a, a – it's just – it's almost like saying, you know, I don't know how I'm going to – how can I get work done during this thunderstorm? Like it's really loud and the the power keeps flickering off and on and you're like, yeah, but the thunderstorm – the good news is that's going to pass. This takes a little bit longer though. Maybe it feels similar when you have a, a kid at home, but it's really not that long of a period until uh, there's, it's just different and there's daycare involved or a nan, whatever. This, this situation evolves and it's not the same as having this, uh, a baby at home and, and a new baby. And I would also say just practically, even if you can't afford to rent an office space, I remember when we had our, our first two kids, uh, so my my wife would go to work pretty early, so, and then I would be with until a nanny came. And because uh, work from home wasn't popular back then, but I was a professor, so it was much more likely that I would be at home in, in the morning. I didn't like to go go in right away because of traffic. So I was in a situation with our first kids. Where uh, I'd be at home, the kids would be at home, and um, the nanny would would be there, and I found myself just I, f- I was a master of locations to work that weren't paid office space, so I could the um, library for example, coffee shop was another place. I did a lot of work on foot I had places that uh, I would hike on these trails and bring my notebooks with me um, because I had this exact same issue Kevin and i and I couldn't afford office space at that point. But I had my virtual office <laughs> so it was here, here, here and here. And I had a whole routine I would cycle through. So I, I, I knew, I knew where to go because it was exactly that same issue. It was like, eh, they're in the other room and, and it's difficult, but, but this is also temporary. So that's, that's the good news. I had worked in One my car,
1: in my parked sure. car, like in the driveway, <laughs> <laughs> because that it. is where I could get away from everybody. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you do what you have to do. If everyone's screaming and you got to be on a phone call like that, that's a, usually a pretty quiet place.
0: I ended up getting my office space. It was, uh, it took, I don't know, three weeks into the pandemic. Uh, my wife kicked me out.
1: <laughs> She's like, get out She's of like, here. She's like, no,
0: <laughs> you're not going to record podcasts. I'm not going to keep no. them
1: quiet. I can't. Yes. I'm not yeah. going yeah. to keep, keep them quiet. Yeah. And I don't
0: want to keep them quiet. And you have to get out. You have to get out of here and figure out how to pay- Yeah. So, all right. Let's see here. What are we doing on time? Are right, We have time. We have time for a couple more. All okay. right. Um, We're
1: efficient, Cal.
0: <laughs> I am very efficient with my time. I. <laughs> I tra- I track it diligently. All right. Let's see here. Um, Kayla. All right. Kayla says, I was wondering if you'd speak about how you've applied deep life concepts to time with kids. We have five kids from seven months to 12 years, and I've chosen to only work part-time for now, which means I am actively parent parenting from 1 to 8 p.m. most days. Put a pin in that. I have a question about that. Um, <laughs> yes. But let's, let's keep rolling for now. But I think Laura has a question about that too. Time with them can easily feel reactive and unstructured. I don't want to create too much structure because with all the moving parts, I imagine that would only lead to frustration. But I also feel that there could be more intentionality uh, in the way that I spend time with them. Oh, this is kind of interesting. Okay, so deep life, Laura. I, I use this phrase on my um podcast a lot, It you know, being intentional about the different aspects of your life. So I guess she's she's wondering about how do you do that with uh, kids? Now, yeah. how, how close is this range to yours? By the way, you you do you have this? Four this kids was or me like kids?
1: four years, three three years ago, roughly. Um, oh, your
0: your oldest is uh sixteen. Because my now. oldest is
1: sixteen now. He wow. just turned sixteen, and wow. my youngest is three. Um, so, so and this and is, your oldest yeah. watches
0: the young. That's how it works, right? So your oldest just watches all the <laughs> other kids, and that's that's how that works. Isn't that how it that's works? How, no,
1: <laughs> well he can. He can and he does some, um, but uh, I I try not to hit my kids up for too much babysitting when they have other things that they would like to be doing with their time, like studying and such. Um, But, you know, it's a lot of kids. (laughs) It is a lot of kids when you have five of them. I I totally love this question, though, because she's correct that time with children often does feel very reactive. And even if you do have routines, it can feel very unstructured at times. And in many cases, it doesn't feel particularly enjoyable. And and clearly, she's chosen to work part time because she wants to spend more time with her kids. And yet, it can feel like that's not the good part of the day, um, because I mean, partly the kid's have their own things going on. And, um, you know, five kids can be pretty chaotic. But I think approaching this with some amount of intentionality, and and this goes for anyone and sort of those hours after work and before bed. Like, I feel like these are the hardest hours to use well in in our lives because we're tired. um, We're all there. Like, we all need to, you know, get through to the end of the day. And it could be a really cool time. But in many cases, it just isn't. Um, but being somewhat intentional about it, like saying, you know, what is some little adventure we could have today? Like, what would I like to have done with a kid or some number of kids by the end of the day? Um, and it can be simple. It's just like, okay, well, you know, before we pick up the big kids at school, we're going to go to the library and get these books from this author that I learned was really good. And then we're going to read those at night. That's my yeah. intention for today. And that would probably make it a better day than if you didn't have that intention. Or I've looked at the weather and, you know, Thursday and Friday are going to be great. So when we pick up the big kids at school, we're all going to, you know, go to this playground and the 12-year-old can, you know, go read or do whatever the 12-year-old does and ignore the rest of us. And and then, you know, the rest of us will, will play on the playground and I've invited this other family to join us and that's going to make it more enjoyable for me and for everyone else. You know, just thinking it through like that um, allows the time to feel like it's possible to enjoy it as opposed to just like dealing with whatever crisis arises yep. in the moment.
0: I, I like that. Uh, the other thing I noticed here, this 1 p.m. to 8 p.m. caught my attention because parenting multiple kids, especially if there's a seven month involved, is as draining as any job you're doing, maybe outside of if you're actively on a like a SEAL team rescue yeah, mission, exactly. right? I mean, it it is very draining. So if you're working a job till 1, and then you're taking the kids from 1 to 8. I'm, I'm going to guess. I don't know the context, I'm, but I'm guessing Caleb maybe has a as a partner that says, well, great, since you're now home with the kids uh, in the afternoon, I can work till I have a hard job and I can work till 8. So the way I would see this then is you have two parents who have jobs that you're working until 8 p.m. And when you see that situation, okay, we have two very high power, like jobs that require that much work, almost always the answer is you are going to have to bring in outside guns to help with that, right? This is the the two law partner parents, the two executives. There's a lot of households like this around where I live in D.C. They end up having huge amounts of support for that. They have night nurses with the young babies. They have uh, nannies to pick people up from school and take them there. They have coverage in the evening. I didn't know about – I don't know if you know about uh, – these like evening nannies, you know about this, where you have like <laughs> one nanny that is during the day, and then you switch to another nanny who comes at four to like make the meals and deal with the kids or whatever. It's what what you do when you have you know uh, 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 spouses that both work jobs that require this much time. So that's the other thing that occurred to me. It's like, well, you're working a very very long hour job, and it sounds like perhaps your partner is too. You have to acknowledge how hard that is and is that really sustainable without either a lot of help or maybe saying maybe you shouldn't be working to your partner till 8 every day. It's not (laughs) – if that might not be necessary, he might just be thinking, oh, this is great. We don't have to worry about child care. There's always someone here, so I can just – Spend time at the office or do whatever. I don't know. The APM caught my attention.
1: Yeah. Well, he could. I mean, or maybe they're both there. Who knows? I mean, but but yeah. If he's working late every night, I would I would certainly say you, you might want to bring in a little bit of reinforcements mm-hmm. to to help you with this. And if he has the option of not doing that, again, we do the thing where each partner gets one night off, right? Do so, that more clearly. You know, Tuesday, yeah. like he's home at yeah. five, and you go off and do your thing, and and then you know, obviously, what you're on till eight the other nights anyway. So he can he can do his thing if he wants to as well. Yeah. Um. And, and one thing with five kids is it's a for one individual anyway. Um, yeah. You know, if you think about the staffing ratio in a daycare, they don't let you have more than four babies per, <laughs> per adult. Um, and, and there's something to be said for that. Um, granted, they, they've got older kids, so I'm sure it's not quite the same. Um, but if you have multiple little ones, one thing that actually I found makes parenting more pleasant is actually getting to interact with the older kids. And so sometimes I have time that I am not working. But if my husband is gone or something like that, I'll have a sitter for the younger sure. kids. And so then I can go do stuff with the big ones. And yep. and that can allow for a lot more enjoyment of, of this time. Like, because then you're doing something that let's say you've got a 12 year old and a nine year old and a seven year old like that. You could do something that the three of them might want to do and like, go to one of those bouncy house places or, you know, a roller rink or I yep. don't know, go see a soccer team play or something. But you could do that and then you're not miserable chasing around a, a two-year-old and carrying your infant. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that just makes everything so much harder. Yep. So you might find somebody who, you know, you're there with the little ones from, from one to the time the big kids get home. And then you have somebody else come help a couple days a week from, I don't know, three to six. and And yep. then you can go do things with the big kids and that might, might help a lot as well.
0: I'm a big believer in that. I, I mean, my wife and I figured that out a few years ago too. If someone is traveling, immediately, like, great, we're getting babysitters. Yeah, and and for exactly that purpose. For okay, so I can take an older kid to do something, or just have time for herself or time for myself to go do things where you don't have to be. It took us a little while to figure that out, but that that goes really well. Also, figuring out who the high school kids are in your neighborhood, who are especially the seniors. are starting to worry about money when they go to college the next year and just we've done this so many times setting something up like yeah like a couple afternoons a week just come over and take the take the five-year-old or the four-year-old and and go do things with them and and it really makes a difference and i I think people don't always think about it because they say well why would i why would i have someone come into my house if i'm here and that's like a, a block people have but it's a one to get past
1: definitely definitely
0: All right, let's do one more question. We've got time for one more question here. This is from Tim, a 26-year-old from Australia. Tim says, In the past, I've definitely had a problem with overcommitting and piling on more stuff at the expense of some of my visions, particularly around athletic leisure and focused time with loved ones. A lot of this has seemingly stemmed from a lack of overarching vision for my life. How do I escape this pattern? So I talk a lot about this on the show, about uh, workload and overcommitting. So what I'm interested in is how you think about how you think about keeping the load of things on your plate manageable and preventing it from creeping into something that becomes a a source of issues.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, you know, most important habits I have for managing my life is I, I plan my upcoming weeks, usually on Fridays. Um, and I look at what is coming up. I figure out what I want to do over the next week, both professionally and personally. Like if I'm working toward any big goals, what steps would I like to take in the next week to get there? Um, I look at what is already there that I've committed to that I'm going to need to do and figure out time for that um, and sort of triage any issues that are going on. And inevitably what happens when I plan out the week on Friday, I may have thought looking at my calendar like, oh, it's a light week. Like there's not that much going on. But when I actually sit down and figure out what needs to happen over the next seven days, it doesn't look that light anymore. And that right there can make me say like, okay, we are we are at capacity. So anything that isn't just... An amazing opportunity. It's either a no or it's call me back in a month, right? Yep. Um, and, and so that's one thing, like knowing exactly what is on your plate is often the best defense strategy for then adding new things to your plate. It's and I'm not feedback. saying you won't ever like a, add new things. Yeah. It's just that if, if it doesn't reach like the top level of like, oh my gosh, I'll cancel other things. I'll move yeah. everything else around to bring this in, then it's probably not worth it. Um, you know, we we can wind up uh, one of the things I always tell people is, is when you're thinking about doing something further in the future, you always want to ask yourself if you'd do it tomorrow because we tend to yeah. view our future selves as as different people, like they'll somehow have more time and more energy than than current us has and you know, maybe some of the people we were talking about earlier in this episode that they have, you know, small babies, like yes, you will have more Energy in another year or two, but, but for many cases, this isn't true. Like you won't be a dramatically different person in six months. So don't agree to do something in six months. If you wouldn't do it now, because yep. there's no magical extra pot of hours that that's going to appear. Um, he, he was talking about, and I know you talk a lot about, you know, figuring out what's important to you and all that. And, um, as you're doing that, you might want to design a realistic ideal week. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is a week in your life, but your life as it is. So, so no, no flying cars, no dramatically different job. You know, your family has not moved off to Tahiti. Like you, you have your current responsibilities, but this would be a week where it's like, yeah, I'm really, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm awesome this week. So, you know, you're working on the things that you want to work on. You're having time for your athletic leisure pursuits and your focus time with loved ones and all those things that you want to do. Where would that happen? Like, what would your you know, standard work day look like, what would your weekend template be in this universe? And I think it's a useful exercise in its own right, because then yep. you're like, Oh, well, now I know what a good weekend looks like. And so as I'm thinking about my upcoming weekend, I can say, does it look like that? And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, well, maybe I can change something. So it, so it does, but, um, it may also help you determine that if I want to, you know, go to the gym on you know, multiple days per week, then I really can't agree to also serve on the committee that's staging all these networking events because that's always going to happen from 5 to 7 p.m. So, you know, that it, it's just not compatible. And I'm not yep. saying that somebody else might not make an entirely different choice, but if you've decided that this is what you want to do, then then that can help you realize what won't fit.
0: Well, I like all three of these. I'm going to summarize what you just said. I'm going to resummarize it because I think this is a this is actually a great package of solutions. Then you can tell me if I'm missing a piece in it. So, so one was uh, control your times, the terminology I would use, but you're, you're building out a plan for the week ahead. You're building out a plan for your day. So you can actually see all the pieces out there that's a feedback function. That's where you begin to get that uneasy feeling of this week is getting too crowded. I'm ha- these things aren't really fitting right. If you're not actually looking at your time on that time scale though, you don't you're not going to get that feedback. You're just going to be in the middle of it. So so I love that. Uh two, don't say yes to something in 6 months if you would be upset to have to do it tomorrow. That is great advice. I was actually talking about that last night. I was doing Ryan Holiday's podcast and we were talking about exactly this point. Uh, We especially get suckered into that when the thing is cool or impressive or looks good on you because you can in the moment when you say yes to the thing in six months or six weeks, you get all the benefits in the moment of feeling good about yourself and, and being impressive and being able to talk about it without having to pay any of the cost. And you're just deferring the cost until, yeah, six months from now. So you say, yes, so you can kind of brag, hey, I'm going to this speaking event in, you know, Hawaii. Isn't that so cool? Just the idea of going to Hawaii. And then you get to the week before. You're like, oh, my God, I got <laughs> to get to And you're Hawaii. on a plane
1: for 11 hours. <laughs> yeah, I got 11 <laughs> hours.
0: And my kids, And how is this going to work? And yeah, you know, yeah. and you I have to do the time thing. And, and you don't pay the debt till, till later. Um, And then the third was, which I really love, have your ideal week in mind. And then use that when in, in making decisions, not just a heuristic of, is it, conceivably possible in sort of a physics sense to fit this in somewhere. It's how does this fit with my ideal week? And I'll say as an example, uh, I do this. My, my summer schedule as a professor, for example, it's very clear to me. What I want to do is Monday, Fridays, no appointments on the calendar. Appointments do happen on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, but not until at least 1030 or 11 Monday and Fridays. It's just I'm working on deep things. The other days I can work on deep things in the morning, and then I have meetings all days be done by four because my my schedule is much less in the summer because I'm typically not teaching. And then I have that ideal schedule. Now when stuff comes over the transom, I say, well, I'm not available Monday. I'm not available Friday, so we have to fit it to a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and it has to be between 10 and 4. And and so this is why I might say, look, it's going to be three weeks. I, I do want to do this, but really it's going to be three weeks uh, on Thursday is the next time this is really going to make sense. You would never naturally do that if you were just ad hoc saying yes or no and trying to fit things. You would just put it wherever. But if you have that ideal week in mind, then you have something to push back on. You say, yeah, no, I believe Monday and Friday is clear. I'm, you're, you're you're protecting your future self. And in the end, no one really, for the most part, no one cares. That person you're setting up this call with, they just need the call set up. They're like, great, we have a date. It's Thursday in three weeks. I don't care. It's on the calendar. Great, I've already moved on with my life. They don't care but you have preserved the week that actually you've, you've thought a lot about. So so yeah. I love I love all three of those techniques.
1: Yep. And again, you can you can make exceptions if you decide it is worth it. Like right? this you made the rule. So if the world's best opportunity came to you on Monday afternoon, you could in fact decide to take it, right? It's you know, we're not cutting ourselves off from this. Sure. It's just saying in the absence of a very compelling reason and this random interview is probably not you know a very compelling reason we're we're going to stick with this so i have the week that i want to have
0: yeah and i figured that out the hard way you probably had a similar experience with publicity tours for books don't let the the publicity assistant manage your calendar for you so if they can put the things on your calendar it is terrible and if you go to another system where you say same amount of things but Put the pending things in a Google Doc. I'll look at that every day and just give you some choices. Do this Monday. Do this whatever. So at least you have some control over where things fall. Without really changing the number of things, the experience is night and day. And it's because these – Th- these uh, ideal structures for your week make a difference. Keeping your Monday clear to have a breather can make a huge difference. Making sure you don't schedule things first thing in the morning. Making sure that if you back-to-back three things that you don't put – it's these subtle things when you see the whole schedule that make a big difference. And I really learned out the hard way that um, if you let someone else control your calendar, they don't think about any of those things.
1: Yeah. And
0: it makes a giant difference without even having to – it's not that they're scheduling more things. It's just the way things are being scheduled, and it really makes the difference when you don't see the picture, the whole picture, and you're trying to rearrange the pieces for it to be pretty. If you're not doing that, the same amount of time can be much more stress-inducing.
1: Yeah, I've learned that when I do four podcast interviews in a row, I'm in a little puddle on the floor at the end of them, and I'm saying really stupid things. So it's best to avoid that if I, at all I possible. Agree. <laughs> I,
0: I agree. I'm actually nervous about it because I'm, this summer I'm up doing this fellowship uh, at Dartmouth, and it, the fellowship has a lot of events that have to go with it, and there's a scheduler. And I'm trying to, I don't, because it's a weird request to make. It's, it's, no, I want to be involved in all the scheduling decisions. Like, well, no, my whole point is to save you from that effort. And it's, we're, I'm trying to communicate. I don't care about the effort of being involved. I care about my schedule not being under my control because it just makes such, I've been there before. It just makes a difference. Cause if someone is scheduled on their behalf, it's like a video game where they get points for everything they get. Look, I managed to fit all these things. You know that's like the game. Is like I'm trying to say yes to as many people as possible, and I get rewarded for saying yes and fitting everything. That's the wrong game for the person who has to do it. That that's so it's a it's a weird tension. But okay, that's good. That's just a little bit of insider baseball venting, though. <laughs> I think most people aren't worried about dealing with their schedulers during their book publicity tours or fellowships. But but it gets to the bigger point. <laughs> um, all right, Laura, you've been very generous with your time. This has been very useful. Uh, I I want to recommend that people listen to your podcast. It's best of both worlds am I, uh, I i sometimes add an extra word but i'm getting that right right <laughs> yes best the one i do worlds. with sarah
1: hart Unger, who was a guest on your show recently um, yes. is best of both worlds and, uh, and then there's in,
0: another one you do too right
1: yeah i do one called before breakfast and that is a short every weekday morning tip that will help you take your day from great to awesome
0: yeah and you can find out more about laura her books and those podcasts. it's uh right it's your name right LauraVandekam.com. also in the show notes so if you uh Like this advice, you can get a lot more of it. Laura, this was a lot of fun. Uh, If I can convince you, I'll have to have you back again sometime not too soon. I'm sure we'll have many more questions like this you could help me with.
1: Sounds great. I'd love to be back. Thank you for having me.
0: Great. All right. Thanks, Laura. All right. Well, that was great. I'm glad Laura could come in and help set us straight on some of these issues. All right, Jesse. So I wanted to uh, move on for the final segment of the show the something interesting segment where we take an interesting thing or article or ideal that someone sends to my interesting at Calnewport.com address. And we, we talk about it uh, before we get to that. Let me just mention another sponsor that makes this show pop uh, possible to longtime friends, my body tutor. I've known Adam Gilbert, my body tutors founder for many years. He used to be the fitness advice guy on my study hacks blog back when it was still a brand new website And as long as I've known him, he's run this company, My Body Tutor, which is a 100% online coaching program that solves the biggest problem in health and fitness, which is the lack of consistency. It's not too hard to come up with a nutrition and exercise plan that makes sense. What's hard to do is to stick with it. What's hard to do is to adjust when curveballs are thrown your way. That is where My Body Tutor enters the picture. You are assigned a coach coach. That coach works with you to develop your plan. What are you doing with food? What are you doing with exercise? And then, and this is key, you check in with that coach digitally every single day. That breeds consistency because you know your partner in this process of getting healthy is actually checking in on what you're doing every day. They are also your partner in adjusting as needed. You got an injury, we need to change how you're exercising, they'll help you do it. You have a bunch of travel or family celebrations coming up, you're worried about nutrition they will help you adjust your plan for that. So it's by having someone you're working with every day, that's where the results come from. So this is why I think My Body Tutor has been around so long because it is a really smart idea. It really does work. So if you're serious about getting healthier, Adam is giving Deep Questions listeners $50 off their first month. All you have to do is mention this podcast when you join. And if you have questions, Adam wants you to call or text. You can find his personal cell number at the top of every page on mybodytutor.com interesting fact uh, about my website Jesse I also have a personal cell phone number at the top of every page but if you call it it actually goes to Brandon Sanderson (laughs) so there you go in his lair in his lair yeah Yeah. he's like hello it's Brandon here the name of the wind is leave a message at the beat. it's a really cool answering machine message if you don't know everyone Brandon Sanderson wrote the book name of the wind (laughs) All comments on that can be sent to Jesse at CalNewport.com. Right, I also want to talk about our friends at Blinkist, other longtime friends of this show. You know I'm a big proponent of books as the right way to improve your understanding of the world, the right way to fill your toolbox of useful ideas. The intellectual life requires books. The hard part is figuring out what books to read, what books to buy, which books to you'll do okay with just reading the bullet points. This is where Blinkist enters the picture. They offer an app that enables you to get summaries of the most important points from over 5,500 nonfiction books and podcasts. These summaries, which are called Blinks, you can read them or you can listen to them from the app. It takes about 15 minutes to read or listen to, so in just about 15 minutes, you get the main points of thousands of nonfiction books. The way Jesse and I use this as a triage service for books we're thinking about reading. We hear about a book. We say, maybe I want to read that. We throw it on our Blinkist playlist. You listen to the Blink while you're doing the dishes it really does help you decide, is this something I want to engage 300 more pages in or do I have what I need to know from this? The blinks are very effective at helping you make that triage decision. So you're only buying the books that you really want to read and yet you're still getting the main points from the books you don't want to read. You still have those main points. They're still there. Those ideas are still there and accessible to you. It really is like the intellectual sidekick you need to support a life in which you do a lot of effective reading. And I want to draw your attention to a cool feature they have right now called Blinkist Connect, which allows you to, for the price of one subscription, share a Blinkist premium subscription with a friend. So if you have someone you think would also enjoy the service, you can now share a subscription with them. That's two premium subscriptions for the price of one. So I think that's pretty cool. All right. So anyways, right now Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash deep to start your seven day free trial and you will get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership that's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash deep to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. That's blinkus.com slash deep. And don't forget that Blinkist Connect promotion. It's here for only a limited time, but if you get a premium account, it will give you an extra account to share with a friend. That's two accounts for the price of one. Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkus.com slash deep. All right, Jesse, let's talk about something interesting. This is an article someone sent me from a publication called Scroll. I'm going to bring it up here on the screen. So uh, If you're listening, you can watch this. YouTube.com slash Cal Media. Look for episode 253. Or the deeplife.com. Look for episode 253. Here's the title of this article. How Japan became an exemplar of sustainability over centuries of self-isolation. This article is from last summer. So, what, what this is talking about is what is known as Japan's Edo period, which took place between when Japan sealed itself off from the outside world in 1603 until we essentially forced it to reopen in 1868. So, there had been some encounters with Christian missionaries in the 17th century, and Japan said, we don't want anything to do with this. And so, they had this 300-year period where they were isolated as an island empire or island nation. This was the Edo period. So they had to be very careful with resources. They had to be... This is where the sustainability descriptor comes from the title of this article. And the article gets into a lot of the way they very carefully reused everything. You would min clothes many times. They would even use the ashes of human corpses. They didn't want that to go to waste. They would use that as fertilizer. And So there's a lot of interesting lessons in there. There's one thing they did, however as part of this Edo period that I wanted to draw our attention to in particular because it overlaps with my philosophy of slow productivity. So it says here, the people of the Edo period lived according to what is known as the slow life, a sustainable set of lifestyle practices based around wasting as little as possible. Okay. Here's the interesting part. Even light didn't go to waste. Daily activity started at sunrise and ended at sunset. Okay. Okay. So, here's what they did, because they wanted to use every hour of light. Here's what they did. They used seasonal time, meaning that the ways of measuring time shifted along with the seasons. During the Edo period, uh, a system was used to divide the time between sunrise and sunset into six parts. As a result, an hour differed hugely depending on whether it was measured during summer winter, night, or day. The idea of regulating life by unchanging time units like minutes and seconds simply didn't exist, right? Because their notion of time, they said, we want a fixed number of units. That makes sense. There's six hours of daylight or what have you. Daylight's what matters to us. So the length of that will just depend on what's going on in the season. Now, the connection between this and my philosophy of slow productivity is The second principle of slow productivity has to do with working at a natural pace. So my three principles of slow productivity are do fewer things, work at a natural pace, obsess over quality. So this gets right to some of the ideas that undergird working at a natural pace. An argument I make in my book on slow productivity, which is coming out in March, so we still have a lot of time, though we locked in the manuscript yesterday, so that's exciting. One of the core ideas I explore there is that it is very unnatural what we do, especially in modern knowledge work. So we took a factory model of these are fixed hours when you work and you just do that every day if it's not a weekend. We just took that factory model and we brought it over to knowledge work. Unlike factory work, however, we don't have – labor organization to protect us here we don't have typically labor unions to sort of fight for well how many hours should there be that we work and how much are we getting paid for and knowledge work that all went aside so we have this very unnatural rhythm of working uh every day same pace and the intensity of that pace is bigger than we even had in industrial work because there's no countervailing forces always too much to do do as much as you can every day is the same a Tuesday in March is the same as a Thursday in July is the same as a Monday in December. That's very unnatural. I, I go through some of the archaeopaleology, uh, paleontology here and, and talk about how humans for hundreds of thousands of years had big rhythms in their lives. Different seasons felt different. Different times of the week felt different. So I like what we see here is, yeah, this is in the Edo period. An hour meant something different in the summer than it did. In the winter, something similar should be true of 21st century knowledge work. There are different times of years, your work intensity should feel different. The number of hours you're working should be different. A, a day in December might feel very different than a day in July if we were actually working in a way that was aligned with our instincts, with what we're used to as humans. What is happening here in the Japanese Edo period is much closer to our natural, our natural mode of operation than working nine to five plus two hours in the evening at home, 50 weeks a year. And so I I like the point of that, the point to the, the naturalness of variation, the unnaturalness of the unvaried rhythm that we use in modern knowledge work. If we want to connect these ideas back to the deep life stack, which I'm trying to do more and more, we're thinking about almost any slow productivity idea that is going to show up in the Calm or control layer, the create calm through control layer, that's where that shows up because that's the layer where you really get uh, your arms on your work, not just organizing what's on your plate but figuring out what you want to bring on the plate, organizing when and how you want to work on it. So that's the layer. When you get to that layer of the stack, to the calm layer, that's where you might really start thinking through ideas like slow productivity. That's where notions like seasonality really enter. It's the type of thing you can do once you take control over your time obligations and workloads is you can start saying – How do I want to work? How do I want July to look different? What is my 21st century laptop worker equivalent of the Edo period slow living hour variation? All right. So I thought that was cool. A little interesting lesson to draw from times past. It's too bad this is too late for me to put in my book, actually, Jesse. It's all locked in. We passed it on the copy editing. I never knew that Japan was isolated for that long. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't know it was that long either. I knew about 1868 commodore Perry coming to japan on like a steamship and they basically said you're open now we have a lot of guns you're open now i didn't realize this backstory that as early as the 1600s they had had an initial encounter with europeans and that's what led to them wanting to isolate Uh huh. yeah interesting period they said that's when a lot of the the bushido code and samurai a lot of this stuff emerged during that that period of isolation Hmm. interesting stuff all right well anyways uh that's all we have time for today thanks again to laura vanderkam for joining us and helping us answer some questions be back next week with another episode though it may be filmed and recorded in deep work hq north So look out for that but i will be here fear not i'm not going anywhere i will still be here weekly so until next time as always stay deep hi it's cal here one more thing before you go If you like the Deep Questions podcast, you will love my email newsletter, which you can sign up for at calnewport.com. Each week, I send out a new essay about the theory or practice of living deeply. I've been writing this newsletter since 2007, and over 70,000 subscribers get it sent to their inboxes each week. So if you are serious about resisting the forces of distraction and shallowness that afflict our world, you got to sign up for my newsletter at CalNewport.com and get some deep wisdom delivered to your inbox each week.